Hello, everybody. I'm Aaron Martell. No, I'm Ray Zimmer. And welcome to Albumatics, a podcast where we discuss and analyze a musical album of our choice. This episode, we welcome back in the saddle guest co-pilot, the voodoo child, Davey Lee Aerosmith. David, good to have you back, man. I'm back! <laughs> Excuse me on that. Hey, well played, sir. Well played. Oh, but Mr. Martell and Mr. Zimmer, it is great to hear from y'all again. I'm great to be back in the saddle again doing yet another review with you, gentlemen. How are y'all doing tonight? Very good. Thank you. Cannot complain one iota. All right. <laughs> me neither. <laughs> So in this episode, we're going to review Aerosmith's 1976 album, Rocks. Davey, what's your history with Aerosmith and this album in particular? Well, I'd like to have a couple things to say off my chest really quick, if you don't mind. Go for it. I would like to kind of uh, respond back on the Stevie Ray Vaughan episode for a little bit, uh, just real quick. I've been kind of thinking about after we did that episode. I know I said that I Couldn't Stand the Weather was my favorite album, however... I was recently revisiting those uh, albums as of late, and I was like, oh, wait, I don't know what's my favorite any- anymore because I'll admit I struggled trying to decide on what my favorite album was. So I think I may as well just not have a favorite anymore. So I'd like to get that off my chest. And um, I'm going to respond to Rob Bork from the Music Matters Record Store. And um, I'm sorry, Rob Bork, because I accidentally said, uh, Willie the Wimp, I know you hate that song, but <laughs> I'll be honest, I like it. And you said not to listen to the Live Live album, and I'm sorry, but I listened to that album way before you said not to listen to it. But <laughs> I know he probably wants to kick me in the nuts for saying that, but <laughs> if it's anything Stevie Ray Vaughan, I'm, I'm going to be listening to it. But yeah, I can definitely see why you said it was uninspired, because the reason is because... Uh, Stevie and Tommy were high on drugs, so that's why you could say it was completely uninspired. <laughs> and uh, and don't you guys think it was? Uh, so I forgot to mention their cover of Superstition, which is a fantastic cover, and I always oh, yeah. had that in the back of my head. So how about that one? Yeah, that's a fantastic cover. Without um, you got that and, one. And don't you think that was way overdue for Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame four years ago? Don't yeah. you guys think so? You can yeah. say that about so many Oh, artists, that's, that's so. true. There's so many that have not gotten their due. There's still some that aren't in. I think it, actually think it's a rite of passage. I think your credibility has to goes up yeah. the longer they like. <laughs> it's a badge of honor. Yeah, the longer they keep you out <laughs> know. of the, the Rock and Roll Hall I know, thing. right? <laughs> yeah. I think I saw Joan Jett being involved in that, year, in that class of 2015, too. And also, one last thing. I would like to thank you, Ray, and Rockin' Mike Cordis. Not Satanic Mike Cordis, but Rockin' Mike Cordis for getting me exposed to Badlands because I just recent I got those uh, albums and good thing I didn't have to hunt those albums down. And I'll tell you what, I was looping with those albums. They were constant players, so I cannot I cannot thank you gentlemen enough for getting me exposed to that band. So I'm really enjoying those albums, and it's I just can't thank y'all enough. Right on, man. So, no, definitely. That's that's kind of I think my hope with this show is anyway, whenever I come on, it's like hope we can like ex- get some stuff out there. People might not have actually had a chance to better have been exposed to, you know. So that's you know that's always a positive. Um, so all right, cool. We got another one. We get the steak knives and we get the uh, the, the timeshare in Boca Raton, though. So we're good to go. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. I can't appreciate you gentlemen enough for that. So uh, make sure you get that to uh, Rock and Mike Chorus. I'm sure he's listening in anyway. So I guess you don't have to. <laughs> all right. So how I got into Aerosmith? Well, I mentioned back in Steve Ray Vaughn episode that I got into Aerosmith due to my mother's uh, collection of greatest hits slash comp albums, of course, such as Stevie Ray Vaughan, Van Halen, Molly Crew. Those are just to name a few of the other groups. Um, but I really didn't I didn't really dive deep into Aerosmith until Guitar Hero Aerosmith came out. Because the only songs I was familiar with, like I think the songs that everybody are familiar with, like say Walk This Way, Sweet Emotion, Love in an Elevator, Janie's Got a Gun, those kind those songs. But it wasn't until Guitar Hero Aerosmith until I was able to dive deeper into them. Because I think back then I was like still not familiar with all the groups. I I don't think I really had Aerosmiths in the back of my head. So that was until uh, that Guitar Hero game came out. And uh, for a review, I decided I was thinking of doing Aerosmith. And I looked up what was the most uh, highly regarded Aerosmith album. And Rocks was one of them. And I decided to do some research for this uh, particular episode. And I looked up Rocks and I listened to it. And that that's um, I don't think this uh, album could get more rock and roll than this. So I, that's that's another reason why I love Aerosmith so much. So that's how I got into Aerosmith and rocks in particular. Very good. 
Ray. Well, Aerosmith, probably the first song I really was aware of is probably like Dude Looks Like a Lady when um, Permanent Vacation came out. You know, there's a couple things. I hated Angel with a passion. Uh, but, you know, I thought that was okay. You know, Ragdoll was good and, you know, um, Hangman Jerry. But they were like never like really one of my main focuses until uh, like my buddy Willie Miller gave me a cassette when one side was the first album and the second side was Get Your Wings. And then I was just like hooked right off the bat. Yeah. Um, and like I pretty much stuck with like you know the old druggy era Aerosmith for a long, long time. Sure. <laughs> and um, yeah, that and that still to this to this day still remains my favorite uh, era. As far as rocks was concerned, my freshman year at UMass, they used to have. I think I mentioned this with Exile on Main Street. It was the cassette tape sale that would come up like every every once a month. And I found rocks, and I was just like blown out of the water with it as soon as I got it. So all right. Yeah. I covered the Aerosmith album Pump way back on episode 7. And as I said then, I first became aware of Aerosmith with their radio hits, like most people. And I got the album Done With Mirrors on cassette in 1985 from a friend of mine. And I dug it to my surprise. Not too long after that, Aerosmith became popular again as they collaborated with rappers Rum DMC on Walk This Way. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of rode that new wave of Aerosmith fandom and started getting the back catalog. I got Toys in the Attic and Rocks right away as I knew they were albums people talked about with this band. And then I just became a monster Aerosmith apostle in short order. Nice. So here's some basic facts about this record straight from Aerosmith's Wikipedia page. <laughs> Rocks is the fourth studio album by American rock band Aerosmith, released on May 14, 1976 on Columbia Records. It was produced by Jack Douglas and Aerosmith and was recorded from February to March 1976 at Warehouse Waltham, Mass., with Record Plant Mobile, and also at the Record Plant, New York City, New York. It reached number three on the U.S. Billboard 200 chart and is certified four times platinum by the RIAA. Next, I'll give you the band's lineup card. We have Steven Tyler on lead vocals, keyboards, harmonica, and bass guitar. Joe Perry on guitars, six-string bass, bass guitar, pedal steel guitar, and percussion. Brad Whitford on lead and rhythm guitars. Tom Hamilton on bass guitar and guitar. And Joey Kramer on drums, percussion, and backing vocals. Additionally, Paul Prestopino is on banjo. Okay, let's get into a track-by-track -track analysis of this album. We lead things off with Back in the Saddle, written by Steven Tyler and Joe Perry. Davey, give us your thoughts on this. <laughs> I think that's I, th I think that's the best way to describe back in the saddle, don't you think? Yeah, but sure. You want to talk about great album starters? Oh wait, I said that the last time I was here. <laughs> but this is the uh, third single off the album. This song is a true Aerosmith classic. The band is letting listeners know that they are back in the saddle, literally, for another rocking album. And hey, Steven Tyler screams it out for you. I'm back. I know that was the most lame attempt to at trying to imitate Steven Tyler, <laughs> but oh well. But yeah, those those screams are just amazing. Those scream that scream just let you know on how great of a frontman Steven Tyler was back in his prime. I wonder if he was able to use that voice to try and break down glass windows when he tried to do that in his prime, because that is amazing pipes back then. Man, I can't get enough of that. And is that a snare drum sound I hear? Yeah, I think that actually sounds like an actual snare drum, don't you think? <laughs> Screw you, sane anger. I think I'm going to start doing that every time I, I hop on. I think we did that. Yeah, we did that episode, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, we said, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Man. It doesn't get I, old, I, though. I not, it doesn't. <laughs> I, I could not stop laughing when I was listening to that episode. <laughs> I'm still, I'm still, I still can't stop laughing, but anyway, 
Joe Perry plays a six string bass on this on this song. So all the other musicians are going all out with the different instruments here in this album. And there are five tracks on this album where Brad Whitford is going to be taking the lead. So we're I think we're going to be uh, praising Brad as soon as we go through this album. But Joe Perry is playing that signature uh, bass hook, you know, that da 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 That is an Aerosmith classic. That's a catchiest chlamydia bass line that I think anybody who can get it, who can get behind, really. And that is a true trademark of Aerosmith. And rumor has it that Joe actually came up with that riff completely stoned and lying on the floor. And Brad Whitford, like I said, is playing, is playing the lead here. Very underrated guitar. So I think we're going to stop... We're going to put it into the underratings here in this album. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Of course, yeah. Aerosmith are going to be coming up lyrics that are completely double entendres. So you can completely imagine what do you think is what do you think back in the saddle means? I think the ti- the song title speaks for itself, doesn't it? <laughs> Still a complete well-known Aerosmith classic. And it's a great rock and start to the album that is known as Rocks. Excellent. Ray. Well, what can I say about this? Um, you had that nice eerie intro in the beginning with the galloping noise in the background, and it really just kind of created tension. You already mentioned the the bass riff, which is awesome. What I think is really fucking funny is the idea of David Johansson from the New York Dolls taping bells and tambourines to Steven Tyler's boots. And it's nothing against the New York Dolls or David Johansson, except all I can picture is Buster Poindexter era David Johansson. We had that big pompadour <laughs> yeah. and it's like trying to look like some sort of Latin lover singer. <laughs> Sing it! Hot! 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 David, do your <laughs> Steven, oh, yeah. hot, hot. <laughs> I'm hot! You're hot! Put on the goddamn bells on your feet! Uh, so, every, every time I think about that, it's like, and what I think is also equally as funny, they both kind of shared Sorinda Fox, who's Mia Tyler's <laughs> mother. <laughs> But man, the demon of screaming—he definitely earns his nickname on this song, without a doubt. Especially as like as Davy covered the "I'm Back" part—you cannot uh, cannot beat that. And it's kind of funny because like there's like a lot of leads. I like the, the little bits of the lead guitar that kind of pop up here and there throughout the song. It's like he never there's never like one spot like on just the guitar solo, like on something like say trading kept it rolling, but it just kind of pops up here and there. It's this is if you're gonna rip out an album, this is a great way to to rip it out first off the bat. Oh yeah. So the superficial inspiration is the Gene Autry song, Back in the Saddle Again, (laughs) which is a cowboy song. And this song has lots of Old West sound effects, as well as lyrics that use the imagery of riding horses and saddles as a metaphor for sex. The track begins with a buildup of the drums and guitars as you hear the galloping horses, like Ray said. Joe Perry, like Davey said, wrote the main riff on a Fender bass. Is it VI or 6? Is that the Fender? I'm assuming as much as a six. But yeah, I don't know. Fender bass six while he was smacked out on heroin. <laughs> Tom Hamilton's bass line also has a country western music flavor to it and is a huge highlight. It features prominently in the song as well as Joe's bass playing. Brad Whitford's guitar uses the whammy bar effectively in that chorus. Woo, woo, woo. That's what he's doing, right? He's just whammying it? I believe so, yeah. yeah. And it sort of comments on the verses. He also gets to play the solo, which is bluesy and rides along with the rest of the track. There's the sound of spurs, like you said, Ray, bells and tambourines, strapped to Steven Tyler's cowboy boots by Joe and David Johansson, go figure. There's a whip cracking noise made by twirling a cord in the middle of six microphones and popping a cap gun for the uh, crack noise. Oh, nice. They tried using a real bullwhip, but none of those whacked out idiots could make it crack. <laughs> so they <laughs> They just ended up troubleshooting and came up with that. (laughs) Steven Tyler, I just love his vocals. The way he shrieks out, we're all saying that. I can't do it. Davey did a lot better than I did. Sounds like a sheep on crack, if you ask me. Yeah, really. (laughs) And the little nods to cowboy stylings, like, oh, (laughs) does all that kind of stuff. And even throws in a little yodel. Ole, ole. <laughs> it's really does, cool. Yeah. Steven is the master of the double entendre, and I've always found him to be a clever lyricist. Peeling off my boots and chaps, I'm saddle sore. Four bits gets you time in the racks, I scream for more. Fucking brilliant, man. Mm-hmm. This opens the album doing exactly what the album title promises. It rocks. This is an absolute classic Aerosmith song. It's frequently played, and it was the third single from the album that reached number 38 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart. Riding high! (laughs) (laughs) That was awesome! That sounded just like it! (laughs) 
Oh man, but is it just me or or is the uh, Brad Whitford leak kind of buried in the mix a little bit? Because you can sound, we'll barely hear it. Even yeah, the headphones. yeah. There's yeah. a lot of noise, yeah. especially towards the end of the song. Everything is just it's kind of muddy. Yeah, the production it, gets yeah, muddy. Yeah. The next track is "Last Child," written by Steven Tyler and Brad Whitford. Davey says, not Simon says, but Davey says, this song is a pretty good follow-up to Back in the Saddle. It keeps the rocking and rolling going. It's the first single off the album. It starts pretty slow, and then it goes into a really cool, groovy riff. The lyrics are pretty obscure to me. Vince Neil would come in saying, home sweet home. Oh, wait, that's Molly Crew. What am I talking about? <laughs> but Steven Tyler <laughs> sings that lyric pretty perfectly throughout the song. Before the fade out, there is a, a nice little solo that's played near the end. Again, it's I think it's a little buried in the mix a little bit. Paul Prestepino, like Aaron mentioned earlier, is playing the banjo on this track. Paul Prestepino has a background of being involved with the Winter Brothers, Edgar and Johnny, Rick Derringer, as well as Aerosmith. He's got a pedigree. Oh, yeah. Steven Tyler sings, I was the last child just a punk in the street about five times, but it kind of the song will kind of fade out a little bit until the sixth time he sings it. That's when the sound of a siren, it sounds like. And I believe that uh, seems like it's a segue into the next track. But I actually first got exposed to this song during Guitar Hero 2 because the, one, the version on that game is actually a cover. It's a little bit of a different sound, but it's a really, really good song nonetheless. Both versions are good, and that's how I got exposed to this song. So, yeah, it just keeps the rocking and rolling going. I'm in an album called Rocks. They're going to do just that, so another good song. All right. Ray? Oh, my God, I love the ever-loving shit out of this song. <laughs> the very first time I heard it, I was just, like, hooked. It's yeah. just, like, it's like just kind of seeped itself into my brain. Well, and the thing I, I think I loved most about it when I first heard it was, like, it's deceptive because at first you have these like intro guitar arpeggios. It almost gives you like this impression you're going to get this like ballad a la Dream On or like even like the softer part of like um, the Beatles, I Want You, She's So Heavy. And then you get this slow boiling rock funk extravaganza. Talk about guitar interplay like we did with Queen Track last week. But Perry and Whitford have like crazy fucking guitar interplay on this song. It's aces. Always with these two guys. Supposedly Brad is playing that low riff, and then Joe's kind of playing the high end being Eastern kind of yeah. uh, funk skanks in the background, which I, I, could, I could see that happening. You can, you can tell that these guys listen to a lot of funk, like particularly like the meters. I know like the yes. meters were a big influence mm-hmm. on, like, on this track. Oh, yeah. on this track, well, yeah. without a doubt. Yeah. Um, I like how like in the backup vocals during the pre-chorus with the yes sir, no sir kind of comes up every once in a while. Hats off to Mr. Steven Tyler for his vocal arrangements and vocal ideas. I don't know how much it was Jack Douglas and how much of it was Steven Tyler. But either way, it's really fucking effective. And the thing is, Steven Tyler makes almost like paints an idyllic childhood uh, description of his childhood in Tro Rico, which is like the Tallarico family compound in Sunapee, New Hampshire. Um, if you read his uh, biography, that's like he paints like this whole thing, like you know, mowing lawns and you know, having people in the neighborhood come over to have these picnics, and that's what this song kind of always yeah, like an idyllic rural setting. Yeah, and then he yeah. has to go back to Yonkers and or wherever, yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which sucks for him. When I saw these guys back in, uh, I think it was ni- yeah, it was nineteen ninety three. <laughs> Four non blondes opened up for him. It was an interesting <laughs> show, but. Uh, <laughs> I was just amazed that a bunch of guys in their 50s could like rock as hard as they did and put that much energy into a show. How much it was chemically induced, I don't know. I don't care. I was entertained for my $30. But, see, I didn't know was that Brad Whitford had such impact in this song and that he was the one doing the solo. So that just blew my mind because I was pretty much stuck in this rut of, oh, I figured Brad was just the rhythm guy and Joe did all the lead work. Right. Not so much. Nope. And I had a newfound respect for Brad Whitford yeah. after this. Without a doubt. Oh, I agree. He's almost like their secret weapon. Yeah, yeah. He's part of what Stephen calls the least interesting three. Well, they, yeah. I guess they refer to themselves as the least interesting three. But tell you what, you take those three motherfuckers out of the equation, nah. Yeah. It's not going anywhere. Well, you've got Stephen and Joe and they're yeah. like the 
good-looking guys. They're mm-hmm. like sort of you know the the, the Mick and Keith, the yeah. Page and Plant kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But Brad is sort of he's sort of like John Paul Jones and Zeppelin. You know, he's mm-hmm. a secret weapon. He does. He does so many things that you don't even realize. Yeah. I mean, he's essential to this band. He really is. Joe says of the two guitarists, he's the more schooled one. Yes. And Joe just kind of more wings it. He's a better guitar player than <laughs> yeah, Joe. Yeah. He really is. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm coming around to that. Because yeah. Joe was one of my idols for so long growing up. But then, and Joe is great at the bluesy licks, and he looks cool as fuck. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's, he's great. He's yeah. great. But yeah, Brad Whitford, I, man, he's, he's, he is, he's the real deal. Yeah, he is. Yes, he is. So the intro's got that slow, shimmery guitars and Steven singing in a dreamy falsetto voice that quickly transitions to that Joey's shuffle beat, complete with constant cowbell in it. Cowbell, baby. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, yeah. And Joe and Brad doing some sweet guitar interplay, like we were saying, that gives this track one funky-ass groove. The chorus sections, if you can call them that, they feel more like pre-choruses to me, though. Yeah. Have more of a standard, insistent beat and then drift off into dreamland again for the home sweet home parts. Tom's bass accentuates the floating vibe, playing high notes. I love the bass in those that particular part. Oh, when yeah. it goes like, you know, boo doo 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 he does this high stuff in there. Oh, yeah. It's really cool. Brad plays the solo again, showing off some bluesy chops that feature less about note choice precision than it does feel and mood. It's sloppy, but it is aces. Brad was the primary writer of this tune, and it's kind of known as his baby. These lyrics are a bit obscure, but what I pull for them are a country boy who's moved to the city, but he misses his mom's home cooking, putting his mule in the stable, and his hot tail poontang sweetheart. Hates in the city, and my love's in the meadow, hands on the plow, and my feet's in the ghetto. I mean, he can come across as a city slicker, but he's not. This guy, he has country roots. Oh, yeah, no, without a doubt. Now, mm-hmm. his country music stuff, that's a whole other... Uh, yeah, that, that's I, whole, I've never explored no. that. Yeah, Should we, I? And don't. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just leave that alone. <laughs> but it all leads to an outro where Steven shrieks out, I was the last child, as the funky music again takes hold and the music fades into the sounds of sirens and street noise that, like Davey said, serves as a segue to the following track. I love this song. And it was the first single that reached number 21 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. The following track is Rats in the Cellar, written by Steven Tyler and Joe Perry. Davey, hit us with it. All right, so the siren from the previous track is going to segue into this song with a bit of a little, is that a disc scratching sound with that little do 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 What is that? I figured it was an engine dying. Oh, oh, it kind of sounded more like a disc scratch, but I could be completely wrong, but oh well. So Brad was playing the lead on tracks one and two, but Joe is taking the lead here. Very fast-paced riffing in this song. Catchy lyrics with a play on words from Tyler while he's putting some aggression into his great vocals. I think the lyrics are about maybe drug addiction, and it's yet another rocking song. And uh, I love the uh, melody of when he sings the uh, New York City Blues. Nice stuff right there from Steven Tyler while the band is just going all out in this song. And near the end of the song, the band are just making love to their instruments and just jamming out near the end of the song. That's why Joey Kramer and Tom Hamilton are completely unheralded members of the band, as well as Brad Whitford on lead guitar, which you're definitely going to get into that more later on down the album. And Couldn't agree more. Oh, yeah. So we're going to put an end to the underratings of Tom Hamilton, Joey Kramer, and Brad Whitford now. So That is our mission this week, Davey. <laughs> That's right. We should have made that our mission to stop the underratings of Jimmy Vaughn back then when I was here. So, but Darn too. I guess, I guess we'll put an end to that now. Why not? <laughs> but yeah, right. this is a great song. <laughs> and uh, just I love the fast-paced riffing from Joe on this one. And I love the uh, little jam near the end of the song, like I said. So... Another kick-ass song, man. Ray. Holy shit, I love the shit out of this song, yeah. too, man. <laughs> I mean, the verse riff is great. Um, there's a shit load of punk energy in this song, which is interesting, because I was, like, trying to look it up. Like, when did the, the Sex Pistols come out and Never Mind the Bollocks? And that was, like, I think the Anarchy in the UK single came out in, like, November of that year. 76? Yeah. 
So this but, would have been before that. Yeah, but still at the same point, you still had proto-punk bands yeah. like the Stooges sure. and the Ramones there. So like, yeah. I have a feeling that that kind of seeped its way into that because I really don't. I can't think of any other like standard rock bands that were like really playing at that tempo, right? The way these guys were, and they were New York too. Yeah, so they would have had like yeah, like front row and center to that right. kind of thing. Um, I guess Steven Tyler thought it was kind of a clever answer to the toys in the attic thing. Yes. You know, rats in the cellar. Yeah, he said that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love the second verse section with the part about the yellow loose and soggy skin, uh, put, soon pushing up the daisies. It's kind of, you know, I, I thought it was kind of humorous. It's kind of like a morbid kind of way with a really fast kind of humorous song. I think at this point in their their career, they kind of really had a good idea of how out of control they were with yeah. their drug stuff. Yeah. I mean, this is a band that supposedly Jerry Garcia from the goddamn Grateful Dead said was the biggest group of druggies he had ever worked with. <laughs> Let that just sink in, people. Jerry Garcia. Jerry Garcia is like right up there with Keith Richards for his yeah. drug intake. And I think they're probably nose and nose. <laughs> Aerosmith is worse than Jerry fucking Garcia. Oh, boy. So that just kind of says something right there. That's bad. Um, so moving onward, uh, we got some decent harp work, which I don't think Steven Tyler gets enough credit for his harp work. He is really good. Yes, he is. He's like, he almost kind of reminds me of um, uh, Sonny, Sonny, is it Brownie McGee? Sonny Terry. Sonny Terry. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's a yeah. lot of Sonny Terry in his playing. Yeah. It's kind of the whooping kind of thing mm-hmm. that he does. There's a lot in there, and he doesn't get nearly enough credit for being able to pull that stuff off. And I like how the solo kicks off with like kind of a call and response with the band, and then all the licks come in. So Joe Perry is on peak performance at this level as far as his execution of the solo. I mean, it's classic blues licks coming out of him. I love the kind of chugging riff at the 232 mark where the whole rhythm section kind of locks in. And the guitars interlock underneath the harp solo. And then it kind of develops into like this decent guitar interplay. And then they just jam out this ending like it's a big bombastic rock ending and it really plays on the tension and release so pff, this song is the balls and also a great song if you're driving at night yeah if you don't want to very you know, nice not worried about speed limits or anything like that yeah <laughs> or maybe you're dealing with actual rats in the cellar yeah yeah, yeah right <laughs> <laughs> yeah this is a revved up boogie rocker that keeps its foot on the gas and like you said it's the answer to toys in the attic the title track of aerosmith's previous album to this one the guitar snarl as the rhythm section surges forward. This track has a lot of momentum. Steven sings the verses as a call in response to himself, like you said, with a call sung in a growly voice and the response in a higher-pitched yowl. Joe's solo is unspectacular, but to me, you're not looking at this band for virtuosity. They're down and dirty, grimy, rocking hard and in your face. The lyrics to me seem to be about living in the city and the effects of taking drugs, something that by this time Aerosmith was knee-deep in. Lines like cheeks are rosy, skin's turning yellow, loose and soggy, looking mighty lazy. Steven knows that the drugs are harmful. He isn't glorifying them. They're wearing and tearing him apart. There's another extended outro section like we were talking about, Steven capably blowing some harmonica while the band keeps the groove going, pushing forward, semi-building to a quick drum roll fill and the trash can ending. Fucking love this up-tempo shit. Aerosmith was so good at this stuff. The next track is Combination, written by Joe Perry. The street is Davey, what do you think about this? What Davey thinks about this song? This has got to be one of Aerosmith's most underrated tracks in their entire catalog. The guitars and bass play a nice chugging main riff, and that that riff is a catchiest chlamydia one. I'm going to probably say that a lot throughout this album. I mean, you can't help it. That's a great main riff right there. The lyric content is about heroin, cocaine, and Joe Perry himself. Ah, how sweet. Joe Perry can actually write a song about himself. Hence the line, you can't part the three of us once we got a hold. So that's that's talking about heroin, cocaine, and Joe Perry himself. I believe that's Joe taking the lead with Steven Tyler backing him up. I could be wrong. Is that, I mean, because this is Joe Perry's song. I think he should be like in the front throughout the entire thing. Are you talking about the vocals, Davey? The vocals? Is that what you're talking about? about? Yeah, they're they're doing them together for the most part. But oh, yeah, okay. yeah, so, Joe is prominent. You can hear him clearly. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, because I was thinking, um, since this is Joe Perry's song, you'd think that he would take the lead in anything, whether it be vocals and the lead guitar. Yeah, this was the first time he actually did it on an Aerosmith record. 
Yeah, so this song is pretty much proof that he could he could write some songs, especially right before he goes into his went into his little solo career. The part that I love the most throughout this song, it's played twice. Like I said, whenever after they sing "You Can't Part the Three of Us," once we got a hold, they play a nice, nice little da 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 da. That's my favorite part of the song, and I loop with that. I loop with that part almost constantly every single time that part comes up. Unfortunately, that part's not as good as the Badlands stuff that I keep looping with recently, but it's still great. <laughs> still great enough for a rewinds part of the song. Unfortunately, I wish that riff was played a lot more often throughout the song. It only plays twice throughout the song, but that's like my favorite part of the song, like I said. Nice little solo work from Joe Perry on this track, and again, like in the previous track, close to the end of the song, the band ramp up the energy and go for a bombastic rock ending. Like, these guys have got that brought down to a, a trademark. These are like one of those trademark bands back then that can do great big rock endings near the end of the song. Like also in, say, Train Kept a Rollin' from the Get Your Wings album is a great rock ending, too. So, Definitely, this has got to be one of my favorite songs off this album. Truly underrated. Agreed. Oh yeah, right. actually, that's like one of my first set, my first little uh, salient points on this is like this is probably one of their most underrated songs in my view of things. And apparently, the rest of us feel the same way. Yeah. We all um, agree. Yeah, it's got it's a cool riff and it kind of almost bubbles that and I love that. Yeah. Um, the vocal harms on this song are. Awesome. Um, I think you can get a little bit of the Beatles influence to come through Stephen coming out on that. And they're also kind of droney, too. And I'm going to come back later, This the way he kind of does arrange his vocal stuff. It's, it, it's, it's a pattern, but it's very effective and it works awesome. I always love the line, I traded you for me. Yeah. That's just like always stuck yeah. in that cool-ass yeah, line. One. Yeah, without a doubt. You got a great blues rock solo from Joe Perry full of Chuck Berryisms and Flash. And I think what's really underrated is the breakdown of this song. Um, you get kind of a cl- blues rock kind of a outro, and then Joey Kramer comes in with like this '70s blues rock Gene Krupa. Like, yeah. it's kind of Latin flavored, isn't it? It does. Yeah, yeah. almost like a somber or something. Yeah, like, yeah, yes. it's really awesome, and it really builds the tension on the way out. And they also in the background of this one, there's a couple other tracks I have this too, but they're like these feedback that this yeah. stuff like that always makes me think of so like Jimi Hendrix like six were nine yeah 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 and they really use it to great effect in the other song so this song is like if I was going to introduce somebody to Aerosmith I would use this song as an intro I'm with you fellas dirty mid-tempo groove rocker that features Steven and Joe singing together on lead vocals which was a big thing because Joe said that the vocals were Steven's territory and he didn't like to surrender any of it the two guitarists are playing the same riffs, but just a little bit off of each other, so the sound is thicker and nastier. Tom's bass is doing really cool things, too. He's not just plucking root notes. He's playing interesting lines, especially in the B sections of the tune. Joe said that the combination in the song, like Davey said, is heroin, cocaine, and me. That's what the song title means, and this is another cautionary tale of substance abuse. Steven Tyler and I both love the line, walking on Gucci, wearing Yves Saint Laurent, barely stay on because I'm so goddamn gaunt. That's amazing shit. When Aerosmith is on their game, their lyrics are fucking choice. The end of the track shifts into a Latin-flavored rhythm, like we were saying, featuring Joey Kramer nailing it on drums, and the sound gets busy with slide guitar thrown in, and the band makes a mighty racket to get to the finish. It's an awesome track. So let's flip the imaginary record over and drop the imaginary needle on Sick as a Dog, written by Steven Tyler and Tom Hamilton. Davey's going to lay it on y'all, all right? So, uh, Ray, I think it's safe to say that you're starting to get sick as a dog? Hmm? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's getting there. <laughs> <laughs> so, Brad Whitford is going to take the lead back on this song. And uh, Tom, I think Tom is actually playing rhythm guitar on this one. Mm-hmm. So, yep. So that's uh, pretty interesting. They're just going all out with the different instruments in this one. So... I think uh, Joe is also going in with the percussion on this. So him and not only Joe is doing percussion, him and Steven are playing bass throughout the song. Really nice groove and lyrics. I like the vocal melody whenever the go is like, sick as a dog, what's your story? Sick as a dog, mm, cat got your tongue. Nice melody there. 
Yes. And I like the little hand claps at the end of the song. So I think uh, the hand claps again make another segue into the uh, next track. So definitely another good uh, Aerosmith song. I like it. Right. I think this is a Tom song. This is a Tom Hamilton song. I think, and I also like how they, they uh, Joe and Steve kind of split the bass duties. They say it's a one take. I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe, I don't know. Or maybe it's some self-mythologizing. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, who's, you know Supposedly who's, they did it right there in the yeah, studio, switching right. off. Yeah, yeah well, I don't know. that remains to be seen. Yeah. But um, people forget how integral Tom Hamilton was to songwriting in their basic catalog. I mean, he wrote Uncle Salty. He wrote the rhythm parts for Sweet Emotion, too. Yep. So he really, they, they give him his due, that little arpeggiated guitar part he gets was like a bird's influence for him. Yep. And it, it sounds awesome. Um, all of the vocal harms on the please part, it almost sounds like a, a, a summer bug in August. And it, please! <laughs> thing. It's, yeah. just, it really kind of goes into your skull, but it's nice. Steven Tyler sells the desperation of this song. He's like, you're the only friend I've got, and you'll be the last to see me rot. <laughs> Once again, he's darkly humorous. You don't like think of Steven Tyler as being darkly, but he really, he's got like the morbid streak. In oh, yeah. It. It's really awesome. I love how the background music and the guitar solo section, it's almost like we get a second song like out of nowhere for that. It's like the way they kind of throw it in, because it doesn't really fit with the rest of it, but yeah. it's still a nice section. The outro is sick. Um, we get kind of like an introduction to the, the verse riff, but the groove is definitely different. It's a lot more laid back. Yeah. I like how Joey Kramer switches over to the ride cymbal on the way out. And then, of course, like Dave, you mentioned, the hand claps and the lead work by, I guess, Brad. Uh, the lead work by Brad on the way Yes. Out. Choice. Yep. So. so Tom Hamilton, the bass player, usually got a writing credit or two on most Aerosmith records, and he came up with many of the riffs for this cut. He even plays guitar on it while Joe and Steven are playing the bass. Like we, I just repeated what you guys have been saying. The intro has pretty guitar arpeggios that Tom said were influenced by the birds like Ray said, and then it transitions to another cool-ass, dirty riff rocker that Aerosmith used to be able to crank out of their dicks seemingly at will. <laughs> Steven Tyler had a way with melodies so that even if you don't know exactly what the words he's singing mean, they're so singable and catchy, you just roll along with them. The best I can come up with for these lyrics is Steven's fascinated with an older woman, but don't quote that as gospel because I'm probably way off. Brad gets the solo for this, and he does his Yardbirds-inspired best. I am with him. The song drowns out toward the end, leaving Tom all alone with his riff. And then the rest of the band come back in one at a time to reclaim the groove and take us to the finish with Stones-like hand claps providing the segue to the following track. And that following track is Nobody's Fault, written by Steven Tyler and Brad Whitford. Dave, you like this one? No, I don't like this one. I love this one. <laughs> <laughs> All you. <laughs> gotcha. Oh, yeah. I, like and love, I like and love this one. Uh, whose fault is it? Do you know? Whose fault? Nobody. Oh, it's got you know, nobody. It's, it's either nobody's fault or it's somebody's fault. It's the San Andreas's fault, that is. Hey, we did an awful job, and now it's just a little too late. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> to all the to all the people who don't give Brad Whitford enough credit, screw them. This is an underrated gem of a Brad Whitford lead. It starts off with some uh, guitar volumes going up and down, and about at the twenty six second mark, that's when the band just completely comes in and it's complete anarchy throughout the song and i love the brad whitford lead as soon as he comes in i love the vocal delivery when steven tyler starts singing loud i must be dreaming i love that that is a that is why i love steven tyler's vocals so much this song is just absolutely extraordinary very interesting lyrics this time around the lyrics are about mankind's demise and world destruction hence the san andreas's fault that catchy main riff, it's its pretty much the equivalent to like an earthquake. I think you can definitely tell by that. And I like how Brad Whitford uh, puts in a little trill whenever he, Steven says, The prophet's all stinking drunk. Maybe I should stop imitating Steven Tyler. I, <laughs> <laughs> I think all listeners are trying to be like, oh, stop, David. You're killing me. <laughs> but 
But whenever he sings, uh, the prophets all all stinking drunk. I know the reason why. You can definitely hear a little bit of a trill going on in there. I like that. So, you know what? Steven Tyler must have had some balls to put in the term concubine in the lyrics, especially in 1976. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I think you could definitely tell. He, he probably had, had a few. Oh, just maybe a few. <laughs> I mean, can you, can, you, can you think of any other group that had the term concubine, especially around that time in the lyrics? No. Oh, the Bee Gees, of course. But. Yeah, Bee Gees. All yeah. oh, right. Yeah. Anne Marie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One thing for sure, not, that many, not that many groups have used that term in their lyrics. So I think you can say they, especially even if it was 1976, these guys have balls. So, man, I'm, I'm quite surprised that this song was not, you know, not as a single. Because I think this is like the strongest track on the album. This is my favorite off the album. I'm surprised this song is not even a single. I could, also, I think the song is pretty close to that of a heavy metal song. It's definitely the heaviest uh, song on the album, I think. I love Joey Kramer's drumming on here, too. This is this song just kicks all types of ass. What is there to say? All right. Ray, what do you say? Can I get a witness? <laughs> um, honestly, the very first time I heard this song was I was in high school. And it was 1989, and Testament had done a cover of it. Yes. And they did a really decent one, too. I, I, at the first, I didn't really realize, like, well, this is probably one of the better songs in this album. Then I like looked at the J card. They like, wait a second. That was written by fucking Aerosmith? Yeah. I had no clue at that yeah. time. But uh, it's awesome. It's, it's so fucking heavy. And those volume swells in the beginning, you can almost hear that kind of an influence on Metallica's. Like on, it was. That, yeah. yeah, on Orion. That, I mean, uh, Damage Inc. Damage Inc. Yeah, no, yeah. exactly. That's definitely where that came up. Um, the riff itself is it's kind of Zeppelin-y. Got some cool lead work by Brad. And the sick groove by the rest of the least interesting three, without a doubt. Um, and let's, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I love songs about the apocalypse as much as, if not more so, as I love songs about hookers. Mm. So this definitely feeds that <laughs> that need That's for me. That's a bold statement, sir. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this is where I'm going to point out something about the vocal harm technique that he uses a lot in this album. He does this thing, which is really awesome. It's kind of like, where he'll have like a string of lyrics, and one guy does like a main drone note, and then he'll like have the other... The, the other voice, really, he, I'm sure he dubbed it over himself, where he has, they'll sing the same lines, but they'll actually move it melodically. So it's almost like a weird droning kind of Gregorian effect, mm. chant effect. Okay. Which I know Allison changes that exact kind of thing. And so and I always loved it when they did it. So I especially love it when Aerosmith does it. Yeah, it's a part like Out of Rhyme or Reason. The part like that, that's an example of kind of where he does that in the song. Uh, the part where it's like, one of, I don't know exactly where in the other parts of them, but the one example I have is, one of these days you'll be sorry Joey Kramer gets some really good Bonham-esque, almost like Bill Ward. <laughs> yeah, and some yeah. symbol work. And yeah. It just shows how heavy these guys, when they put their mind, could, could actually be. Yep. Um, and as far as the lead work is concerned, when I listen to this song, I love the lead work, but I get this idea that they were really paying attention to Dick Wagner and Steve Hunter on the stuff that they were doing on Train Kept the Roll, and they're yeah. like, shit, maybe better if we did that ourselves. And I think they step up to the plate beautifully on it. Um, the chromatic descending part on the pre-chorus, on the way back down... Definitely kind of gives you that idea of like descending into the apocalypse, yes. and that that was just a great uh, songwriting device choice on their part. This song is heavy as fuck. Go out there and listen to this if you haven't heard the song. Fuck, I have like nothing to say. You guys totally said everything. Fuck. <laughs> so I'm it's, just, it's, got, it's I'm, got a good I'm, beat. I'm just going to repeat everything. I'm just going to repeat everything. I'm fucking. I don't care. Here we go. It's got a good beat and it's easy to dance to. <laughs> <laughs> dance to anything by this band. You took everything from me. I met Metallica. Fucking fuck! What the fuck, guys? <laughs> All right, here we go. I'll do what I can do. I'll, I'm just going to repeat what you guys said. I love the unholy frig out of this song. It's in my top three Aerosmith tunes. The volume swells intro, kind of borrowed by Metallica for Damage Inc., which makes sense since James Hetfield said this is his favorite Aerosmith song. The main riff is dark and menacing, one of Aerosmith's heaviest. The guitars are growling like a couple of starving bears in the springtime after hibernating. And the rhythm section is heavy on the backbeat. Those drums just thud, and Joey's hi-hat work is tight in her standout. The lead guitars soar above the darkness and also act as a lifeline as the chords descend in the chorus, adding to the tension of the track, like you said, going down to the apocalypse. Steven is really yowling out these vocals like he's a prophet of the apocalypse. He sounds like his throat's going to be sore after this one. The lyrics have doom-laden imagery that were inspired by a nuclear power plant in New Jersey that was built near a fault line, and Steven himself said it's about the band's fear of earthquakes and flying. Aerosmith could get serious on occasion with their subject matter, and this comes across as a dire warning to mankind about causing its own destruction. 
There's some bluesy crying soloing as the track fades, and this song is a favorite of both the bands and hardcore fans, yours truly included. Oh, yeah. Yes, sir. The next track is Get the Let Out, written by Steven Tyler and Joe Perry. Davey, what do you think? Davey thinks, I think the title kind of speaks for itself, doesn't it? It looks like Steven Tyler wants to get acquainted with a woman on the dance floor. It looks like Steven Tyler still has never had enough of doing. So <laughs> nice groovy riff played throughout the song. And I like how the band jams out near the end. Rhythm section is pretty jammy, too. They got that down. They got that nailed down. I think this is maybe a little bit underrated in their catalog. Maybe a bit of a... Quite the deep cut, in my opinion. And I think the drums near the end possibly segue into the next track. And yeah, I think it's another pretty good deep cut. All right. Right. All I can say is that Hank Williams Sr. would be proud of this song with the Hey They're Looking. <laughs> he only wished he could have done that with that song. I'm a big Hank Sr. fan. So, yeah. But, yeah. Um, but no, this song has an awesomely underrated riff. Um, this song is meant to be blasted at strip joints. And I'm surprised that back in my day of going, I didn't hear it more often. <laughs> but then at that point, it would probably have been more appropriate to hear something along the lines of Snoop Dogg back then. So, hey, what are you going to do? Times change. Strippers change. Um, <laughs> um, Steven Tyler has really cool vocal vibrato that sounds like Woody Woodpecker on Crystal Meth Laugh put together. <laughs> um, for another example, see Colin Hay of Men at Work. Hey, good looking. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, right, exactly. I, I love the shit out Mike, of it. There you go. Right? <laughs> yeah. the, the chorus is fucking awesome. Uh, Steven Tyler locks in with a guitar riff on the grab hold of my wrist section. It's kind of a menace in Steven Tyler at this point. Like, it almost you expect him to say, is Steven Tyler going to have to choke a bitch? You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, watch out. I'll tell you, I show you my fist or something like that. He, yeah. Steven Tyler's not playing around I with this, bro. Steven Tyler's choked a bitch in his Oh, day. he has. Yeah. 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 <laughs> there's no doubt. There's some nice lead work again. It sounds like there's a little duel between the leadist and Steven Tyler on harp, which is, or maybe that's just, you know, they're complimenting each other. I don't know. But there's a little bit of tension there, which is pretty decent. At the 2 minute 38 mark, there's like some solid lead work. The outro almost gets dragged out a little too much for me. I mean, they could have faded out quick at the 248 mark uh, and been done with it, and that'd been fine. It just seems like that's the only part of the, my only complaint about this song is it just kind of goes a little too long with the atmospheric ending. Yeah. This has got a throwback feel, like it could have been on Aerosmith's first album. It's a basic plodding bluesy rocker with a bit of boogie in the groove, and Steven's in his sleazy lover man voice. The lyrics are pretty basic as well. Steven sees a lady he likes, tries to get her to dance with him, but as is often the case with Mr. Tyler, it usually comes back to sex, and that's probably what he's really looking for, aren't we all? (laughs) It has a brief blues guitar solo along with a brief blues harp solo, and Joey adds a little bit of cowbell in it just to make sure I don't badmouth this song too much. (laughs) Actually, this does have the scent of filler all over it, but it's quality filler, and it's a lesser track for me, but I still dig it shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The penultimate track is Lickin' a Promise, written by Steven Tyler and Joe Perry. Davey, what do you say? Davey says, I think the title of the song kind of screams a cheesy pickup line, don't you think? I'll give you a lick and a promise. (laughs) (laughs) The drums kind of take back uh, from the uh, segue of the next track, and I love uh, Joey Kramer's little fill at the start of the song. It's the shortest track on the album. Another catchy riff coming in. It's 
I think it would be more fitting to have a song on a album called Rocks to be have, having a song that is about the rock and roll lifestyle. I mean, the money, the girls, and the worried mother. I mean, you got to put that on an album, especially when you're dealing with Aerosmith. So pretty generic lyrics, I think, in my opinion. But that does not diminish the fact that I still like this song. They have their hooks. So the Na Na Na's would make a really good live performance of the song. So another great deep cut, man. Yes, sir. Mm. Ray. Well, you got a cool drum intro by Joey Kramer, and you got a great rock riff in the verse section. Um, I always thought this would be kind of like a nice companion piece to Rocky by Thin Lizzy. You know, you got Rocky, mm. the rock and roll star. You got Johnny, who's definitely on the same. Like, yeah. like, play these, like if I could like, had, like, could arrange something on a show, I'd like, definitely put these two songs back to back. Nice. Um, honestly, I used to hate the chorus with the na-na-na part, but like as the years have gone by, I've kind of learned to overlook it and think, eh, it's okay. I'm never drugged out at that point. Never yeah. Think, Whatever. Yeah. Put something in there. It's Give kind of, a pass. It's kind of a hook. You know, it's cool. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's an eye hooker, but it's an ear hooker. Um, <laughs> this song is kind of an ode to the Dionysian waste case rock star who finds him, fucks him, and flees. Um, solo itself is pretty standard. One thing I noticed is uh, at the 234 mark, the lick that they're playing, that's the same uh, lick. Or that's this, it mimics the rhythm riff in Toys in the Attic. That da na 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 And they do that twice. Call back to it, I think. Yeah, yeah, it does. Kind of. Like, I thought that was kind of a, I, Honestly, in years of listening to this album, I never noticed that, so I sat down and listened to it. I played it twice. Like, oh, yeah, that's Toys in the Attic. <laughs> that's pretty dope. Yeah. Now, this is how it's done. Aerosmith turns up the tempo, and this hard rock and boogie's got serious swagger, son. This is what Get the Let Out wishes it was. Joey Kramer's drum intro would be aped by Tommy Lee years later on the Motley Crue song Bastard. Oh, yeah. And that kicks off a crunchy ascending passage that leads to a fast boogie riff that would get Angus Young's diminutive dick hard. <laughs> the band sounds engaged with the guitars loud and the rhythm section churning. And Steven Tyler owns this song. His voice drips with confidence and scuzzy attitude as he sings of Johnny the Rocker with all the fortune and fame and the young girls down at his knees. The whole rock star life. Something Steven could certainly relate to. The na-na-na-na-na pre-chorus and lick and a promise chorus are sing-along earworms, and I've said this before, but I think he's often overlooked in the discussion of great frontmen, which is horseshit because the man had the goods, period. Steven Tyler is the man. And this song is an underrated gem, in my opinion, and I think the band agreed because they put it on their compilation album of, like, overlooked songs. It's called Gems. Oh, yeah, really? It's called Gems, and oh. this is on there. Oh, nice. And that brings us to the final track, Home Tonight, written by Steven Tyler. about this last one a uh, quick question for ray mm-hmm. did you hate this song back in the day because it's a ballad fucking a right i did <laughs> <laughs> of course yeah you but did. no no but, but let me back that up and qualify that by saying i think what the hell is the song i think you see me crying as a far superior ballad but go ahead we can oh absolutely, edit, oh, absolutely. Edit, <laughs> this is the uh, second second single from the album i think it's a as a song itself, I think it would be a nice closer to an album. But personally, I think there's a little bit of something that tells me that it just doesn't fit on here. Because you're supposed to have a, a, an album called Rocks. You're supposed to have a rock and rolling album. This song, just just go on the less end for me. I still like the song. I still completely accept it as uh, I accept all the songs on this track. Brad goes back to the lead in this one. So, again, another underrated guitarist for uh, Brad Whitford's leads. But I think Steven Tyler completely owns this song. He can, he can definitely sing ballads a la Dream On. He can, he can completely uh, deliver ballads and make them emotional. Joe plays pedal steel in this one, while Joey Kramer and producer Jack Douglas sing backing vocals. Like I said, I just don't think it really fits in with the rest of the album, because all the albums are complete rock and roll tracks. This one, in my opinion, just doesn't really go in the whole rock and roll category. I, if I had to pick something off this album, I'm afraid it's going to have to be this one. In the joking manner, uh, Aaron, I think you're going to have to get ready for the uh, low pitch vocals because I hereby <laughs> dub thee as Davy's ineffective song selection. 
but it's in the joking way. So at least it's good for being considered as such. But still, um, I think maybe maybe it's because of the album placement, the uh, song placement on the album. I could be completely wrong, but uh, I just don't know if I was a uh, if, if it were up to me, I don't think I would have closed out the album with this. But if it were to actually serve as a closer to like a different album, then I think it would be a lot more fitting. But but yeah, I don't have anything uh, really bad about this song. But yeah, I still like it. Okay. Right. It's kind of funny because sequencing-wise, there's some similarities between this one and Toys in the Attic. Yeah. I mean, look at Round and Round and Nobody's Fault. Well, not really necessarily sequencing, but they had that the one heavy, yes. heavy Zeppelin kind of song. And then they come to this song. Steven Tyler sounds kind of like he's trying to like to take a second shot at his own version of The Long and Winding Road. Mm. And I know he's a Beatlemaniac, and he could pull it off. But this song just kind of reminds me too much of their 80s and 90s outside co-written power ballads like, you know, like Desmond <laughs> Child and, you know, yeah, you know. <laughs> I shudder. Yeah, right, yeah. And I, I, and I hate to say it, but this kind of was the direction they were going in for like their late 80s and early 90s stuff. And I still think that like as far as their ballads go, yeah, I didn't like this when I first heard this. But I think that You See Me Crying is an awesome ballad as far as this. Like, as far as one of the few ballads, power ballads, I should say. That I'll actually stand by as being really solid, and that was also a weird choice to end Toys in the Attic with. But it's still, I still, I think it trumps this song uh, by far. This song is a miss. I think the only thing really saving this are the uh, blues solos provided by Mr. Whitford, and they kind of let him go off in the end, which is kind of nice. It's the only really redeeming part of the song in my mind. But other than that, this is too saccharine, too sweet, and I think Alfred E. Newman from Mad Magazine said it best when he said "blah." <laughs> so this is gonna be Ray's. Unimpressed musical pick. Double blah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Guys, what's this album called again? Rocks. Oh, it's called Pablum. (laughs) (laughs) Judging by this song. (laughs) Is it called I'm a Pussy? Yeah! (laughs) Yeah! (laughs) I'm a Ah, vertical smile. The Aerosmith Big Ballad. In general, I'm hit or miss with them. For every stellar dream on, there's an awful I don't want to miss a thing. So it's a crapshoot with these guys. But Steven loves writing them, apparently, often as album closers. This one's okay. I'm kind of with you, Davey. It's built on a Steven piano riff and beefed up with Joe's pedal steel guitar, as well as big gang chorus vocals by Joey Kramer, Tom Hamilton, and producer Jack Douglas. There's also some tasty soloing as the track fades to try and redeem it. That's exactly what you said. Actually, I do like the solo. Oh, yeah. Out. Yeah, no, yeah. it's awesome. It really it's is stuff. good. Lyrically, it's as simple as it gets. Steven's been on the road, but he lets his woman know he's coming home tonight. Don't be sad. It's not horrible. They've got much worse ballads than this. But this album is called Rocks. Not sucks. <laughs> it should shock no one that this is Aaron's stinky stinker. Talk about no surprise there. Get it? But it's if you're going to have this on the album, it's got to go here. This is yeah. the only place on the album you could put it. Yeah, yeah. This was the second single that reached number 71 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. Now that the track by track is completed, we'll give our final thoughts and album ratings. For you new listeners, the rating is a 0 to 5 system, with 5 being a favorite album of ours, all the way down to a 0, which is worse than I don't want to miss a thing. (laughs) David, give us your final thoughts on Rocks. Well, if I were to give this album a 0, I would probably say, which means this album will not be coming home tonight. (laughs) But anyway... This album truly lives up to the name. I mean, what would you expect from a rock and roll band known as Aerosmith? And when an album title called Rocks, what less are you going to expect? They're going to rock your ass off like they normally – they got that down to a science. And this album just completely knocks it out of the park. This album really made a big mark in terms of many musicians, which, of course, inspired James Hetfield with Metallica and the late Kurt Cobain and even Slash. Because, of course, whenever you think of Aerosmith, you think of the Rolling Stones, their predecessors, and their successors being Guns N' Roses. Like, of course, you got Joe Perry and uh, Brad Whitford, truly underrated lead guitars. We've been praising him all night long. You can think of him as, like, uh, Keith Richards and some of the other guitars that he's worked with, as well as Slash and, say, maybe Izzy Stradlin. Tom Hamilton and Joey Kramer are completely uh, unheralded in terms of all of rock music. They are truly underrated rhythm section. Tom Hamilton is a great bassist, and as well as Joey Kramer, truly great drummer. I think he's definitely one of the more underrated rock drummers. Like, I would definitely reminds me of uh, Alex Van Halen from Van Halen. Truly underrated. Unfortunately, this album does not have the uh, big, big hits such as Walk This Way or Sweet Emotion or Love in an Elevator, but this album 
is truly an astonishing, great, greatness of a rock and roll album. So the title of the album speaks for itself. Aerosmith rocks, rocks, rocks. Enough said. I give this album five stars. This is an honorary Desert Island disc in my collection. Great. Man, boy, this is a tough one because Aerosmith was like my band in high school. It was one of those things, well, particularly old Aerosmith. Like a lot of, like a lot of the other people when I was in class that loved all the new shit, but like I felt like a real connection with them because, you know, they were, they were out of Boston, you know, and they had played like all over Massachusetts. They even played Greenfield High School. I mean, yeah. so it, it's, it felt like a Massachusetts thing. And um, I, it's like one of those things, right? Every one of those albums right up to Rocks, or well, later on through Rocks, like my freshman year at UMass, uh, I just always felt like this real, like those albums were, for lack of not to sound new agey or cheesy, those albums were my friends. Uh, my freshman year at UMass was fucking awful, man. I was in a suite where I didn't fucking know or like really many of the fuckers I lived yeah. with. <laughs> and then I got this album, and I just, like, I could get sucked into it. Like, I could have a totally shitty weekend, but if I put on Exile on Main Street or I put on Aerosmith Rocks, I mean, things are kind of going to be okay. So it's hard for me to, like, separate the sentimentality from being able to look at objectively and, like, how great a rock album it is. It spoke to me, and so I'm going to go with the five. The rock is awesome on this album. The riffs were great. Brad Whitford was a monster. Um, Joe Perry brought that rock attitude. The Screaming Demon did some great stuff lyrically and vocal harm arranging. And Hamilton and Kramer were were beasts in their own right. So uh, I didn't have to hesitate when I sat down and listened. This, this is a five for me and will always be a five for me. All right. By 1976, Aerosmith had built up a loyal fan base due to relentless touring and their 1975 album, Toys in the Attic, having chart success and hit singles. They also dove headfirst into the rock and roll lifestyle with all the drugs, booze, and women they could want, and it was starting to affect them on a personal level. Fortunately, at this time, the band was at a creative peak, and for their next album, Aerosmith decided to go for a more raw, streamlined sound that would recall their first album while also showcasing the expanding songwriting chops that they developed. Steven Tyler and Joe Perry were the creative and visual focus of the band, but for this record, they were open to more input from the other members, and Brad, Tom, and Joey stepped up to the plate and delivered some excellent material. Despite the band members' deepening drug indulgence, their creative juices didn't seem to be hampered just yet, and Rocks highlights some of Aerosmith's best-known and highly regarded tracks. This is strong evidence for the case that Aerosmith is America's greatest rock and roll band. If someone who never heard of Aerosmith asked me what I think is the best album to start their collection with, I'd say... Toys in the Attic. <laughs> I feel that record offers a more encompassing overview of what Aerosmith is about, sonically and stylistically. Then I'd tell that Aerosmith neophyte to get rocks next. This is my personal favorite Aerosmith album. It's raw, dirty, and sleazy, and it's extremely influential. You can hear its influence in so many bands that came after this, and now, David, this is a part where I almost repeat verbatim everything you said. Guns N' Roses is a different band if this didn't exist. And Slash said this is the album that inspired him to play guitar. This is an absolute five for me. It's a Desert Island disc, and I will never get tired of it. It's the best from the bad boys from Boston. In short, Aerosmith rocks. Rocks. <laughs> now we'd like to thank the voodoo child, Davey Lee Smith, for returning to the podcast and talking some Aerosmith with us. It's been real. It's been unreal, too, man. Thank you so very much for having me on here. It's been too long. Oh, I was so ready to, to hop back on and do another review with you, gentlemen. And a couple of stuff I want to point out before we uh, before I sign off. I have a question for both of you, gentlemen. Uh, Ray, what is it going to take to have my own version, uh, like the non-musician's version of the Golden Kunkel? What's it going to take? <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna have to think about that man i'm gonna have to think about that yeah it's gotta involve something percussive we I should just... start a patreon page and have the golden kunkel yeah, <laughs> but i will get let me get back to you on that yeah it, it's gotta it, there's gotta be something you could do i don't know what to say <laughs> if it's a hand clap middle middle of the podcast or you start doing the steven tower thing and shaking a thing of tic tacs midway through <laughs> but i think it should be open the the open the golden kunkel should be open to non-musicians as well so Absolutely. Let me get back to that on David. I'll, I'll let you know. Absolutely, because I, <laughs> I think that'll be a complete honor having a, a, a golden bust of Russ Kunkel. So <laughs> it'll be a complete honor. <laughs> <laughs> we should have like an award show on the podcast for the Golden Kunkels. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Give them out to the listeners. Why not? 
Another question for Aaron. Um, are you taking applications of being a part of uh, your anti-talkbox team? Because I love to sign up. Absolutely, man. You're getting the first uh, opportunity. All right. Thank you very much. And uh, again, um, you guys, over the past few months, I've ever first heard about you guys because I was uh, looking through the Stevie Ray Vaughan episode. It was the first episode I listened to you guys, and I was just completely hooked on this podcast ever since. And you guys have become my favorite podcast so far. And you guys may have inspired me to even try and go into a rock album or say video game soundtrack podcast of my own i'm still thinking about it but you guys have inspired me to at least give that a try good for you man excellent so go for it yeah and thank you man for the compliments appreciate it yeah thank you very much absolutely and uh last but certainly not least uh i know how you guys like to do those little jokes at the end of your show so if i were to have my own kind of joke at the end of the show if there should be a song written about joe perry and uh, chris holmes then there should be a song written about russ kunkel Absolutely. <laughs> yes, <all> right. <laughs> I've been Davy Lee Smith, and I'm off like a prom dress. Until next time. <laughs> Very nice. Thanks. <laughs> and that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast at places like iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, TuneIn, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review of it. If you take the time to do that, we'll read your review right here on the show. If you'd like to contact us directly, we can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com and also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page, where there's a link to hear each podcast, including the Album Addicts branch of the show. You can also recommend the show on Facebook if you'd prefer to do it that way. And yes, we'll read your Facebook recommendation on the podcast. We're also on Twitter at R4PodcastAaron and Instagram under R4Podcaster. You want to come on the podcast and talk about an album with us like the Voodoo Child just did? Give us a shout and we'll set it up. We're always looking for co-pilots to host the show with us, and we would also welcome any requests or suggestions for albums to cover. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. We'd love to hear from you. So for Albumatics, I'm Aaron. And I'm Ray. See ya. track is Rats in the Cellar. Wait, wait, I'm going to do that again. <laughs> I got a frog in my throat. Just so some... okay. There's your chipmunk stuff right there. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> the following track is Rats in the Cellar. <laughs> the following... Tr- uh, I love the second verse sec- section with the... Um, if he put talk about uh, this... Holy shit, what the fuck? You can't read what you wrote. No, I can't. I got it, I got it. Okay, okay, I'm going to joke Okay, 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 okay. Okay, okay. Have I had a chance to read the Steven Tyler biography? Oh, no, I haven't. I I don't know why. Maybe I should. It's it's good. I'm not all the way through it yet, but Aaron made a good point. It sounds like you would picture Steven Tyler... Talk. Yeah, it's in his voice. Yeah, it's so, like, well, it's not a biography, but, but yeah. I almost wondered if like, he had like one of those like Kurt Schilling dragon things where he just like spoke into it and didn't have any editor. <laughs> it does come from, like you get all that manic hyper energy that he that he has yeah. and it comes through in the writing. It's amazing. So, Mr. Oh, Tyler, you want this? Looks like looks like Steven looks like looks like Steven Tyler had problems with both Joes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah Steven had problems <laughs> with Joey when they were first. He, he, he was like, "No, you're not getting the feel, man." And then you get on the kit show. You gotta do it like this. Yeah. And then, then, yeah. then he said Joey would Joey would pick it up. Joey would pick it up after. Yeah, yeah. Like I even heard like he, he would even play like hi hat on some of the early yeah. tracks. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. Imagine Steven, you just put Steven Tyler's best vocals into a chipmunk and there you go.